The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. There are entrepreneurs and business leaders that are making so much more than profit in their enterprises. They're also giving back to the community, and so can you. Welcome to Be More, Achieve More, inspiration for the entrepreneurial mind with host Chris Cooper. If you are looking to make the most of yourself and your business, then you will want to stay tuned for the next hour. Here's your host, Chris Cooper. Hi, this is Chris Cooper of Be More, Achieve More and CC1 Consulting. I'm delighted to be back with you for yet another show. And today we're going to uh, learn some business lessons from uh, Fast Jet Flying with my guest today, Mandy Hickson. Before we start that, I want to say a big thank you to my guest last week, Jeremy Lazarus. Lazarus. Jeremy was talking to me about NLP and neuro-linguistic programming, if that helps. If it doesn't, then please listen to the show last week. Whatever you do, taking time out to really understand yourself, challenge your own beliefs, expand your horizons, and learn some new skills has to be a really good thing. And there are some great skills within NLP that are very helpful when dealing with people. And in particular, for me, I love things like the frames of NLP. It's like examples like taking 100% responsibility for your life and for your results. Results, not excuses. And also acting as if, acting as if you can. And all those skills, I believe, that my guest today will have had to employ in abundance during her uh, career and uh, particularly, I imagine, during the Gulf War conflict in Iraq. So have you ever wondered what it must be like to fly a fast jet in a combat situation? For me, if I think about fast jets, my mind is immediately taken back to the film Top Gun, if you remember that one with Tom Cruise. And since then, I've always been intrigued to understand more about this challenging and dangerous endeavour. Before meeting my guest today, I'd actually only ever met one fighter pilot, and I'll tell you the, uh, what happened because I made the mistake of asking him if he'd ever used his ejector seat and he looked at me like a complete idiot and said if I had I'd probably be dead and he walked off. I hope I got more luck today. So when life is on the line fast jet pilots must be very rigorously trained and when qualified their exercises must be planned very carefully and also evaluated very carefully and that's why I think that we can learn a lot in business from the training, the planning, the debriefing, and uh, those sorts of things, and probably the mental attitude as well uh, from people who fly, fly these fast jets for a living. Finding a love of flying earlier in her life, Mandy fought hard to achieve her ambition to be a Royal Air Force pilot. And she was actually only the second woman to fly a Tornado GR4, completing three tours of duty and 45 missions over Iraq. She became the squadron's combat survival and rescue operator, uh, sorry, officer working closely with the United States, instructing squadron members on escape and evasion tactics. And throughout her time, Mandy was the only female aircrew, and she later learned the lessons of juggling this life as a working mother with two young children. And having ch- had challenges this evening of getting my two to bed um, after a busy day, I can imagine must be very challenging in that kind of a role. 
And now a civilian, Mandy draws on her experiences to train and inspire others. She's a consultant for Global Air Training. She runs Train the Trainer courses, covering the core areas of human factor decision-making, communication, leadership, conflict, fatigue, stress management. And she's also a highly demanded keynote speaker in the business and education sector. So a big pleasure today to welcome Mandy Hickson. Are you there? I am indeed. Thank you very much. What a what, what an introduction, Chris. You're very welcome. I'm glad you can hear me through my um, my hay fevery tones this evening. And uh, <laughs> I think one of those um, NLP frames I was talking about was being in cause rather than in effect. And I think I'm just uh, having to get myself into cause a little bit this evening. <laughs> exactly. So I really wonder, Mandy, do you want to share a little bit about you know what inspired you to become a fast jet pilot? Um, well, for myself, actually, it started at a very young age. Um, my grandfather was uh, a great role model when I was growing up, and um, he himself was a Second World War veteran, and he flew fast jets uh, throughout the uh, war and the conflict, mainly in South Africa for himself, actually. And we, as uh, young girls, my sister and I grew up listening to these stories uh, that he would spin and tell us, and you know, we were enthralled by it. Uh, but it was only really when the Air Training Corps, which is a sort of club run locally in uh, the UK, was opening its doors to girls for the very first time. And it, it was really then that actually I actually went along and joined for the first time. And I had my first ever trip in an aircraft at the age of about 13. And it was literally once my feet left the concrete and we started flying that that was it. The passion in me was literally lit at that point. And uh, I always wanted to to pursue that career from that moment onwards. Excellent. And was that a fast jet that you? No, it? no, it was not. Sadly, it was it was actually a chipmunk aircraft, which I hate to say is now a historic aircraft, and you can find them in museums, which makes me feel a bit older than perhaps you might expect me to be. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So it was therefore kind of in your family makeup, really. Uh, how, how did your family feel about you wanting um, to? Well, my mum was always a very strong role model in herself, actually. And, you know, I, I sort of really followed in her footsteps of that, um, that mindset that we can achieve whatever we want uh, if we set our hearts on it. And I think once I'd set my mind on, on pursuing that career, I only ever received support from all my immediate family members. Um, and, you know, they would go to the end of the world to sort of help me and encourage me to, to pursue my dreams. And you... You pursued that dream in a profession that was actually you know, very male-dominated. I mean, how did you feel about that? Because you're kind of breaking the mould in some respects. Yeah, I mean, it, to be honest, Chris, it's interesting because when I was sort of first interested in doing this, it was not the fact that it was an all-male environment, and, it, and that really never actually crossed my mind. I know that sounds a ridiculous comment when I look back on it because it really was sort of 99%, well, 99.9% male-orientated. And... Um, and really, when I was going into it, I was probably perhaps a little bit, you know, blinkered because of my drive to achieve my goals. Um, and it was only really once I was actually in and firmly established that I realised sort of, you know, how it was to actually be the only woman on any squadron I was serving on. And um, it, it didn't actually bother me. I know that sounds sort of quite a strange one. I think you have to be a certain type of person that wants to perhaps work in such an all-male environment. But actually, that was never the issue for me. I simply wanted to fly the aircraft. And the fact that I, it happened to be so male-orientated was really not an issue, actually. So tell me, what, what does 
what does a training involve, you know, to become a, a fast jet pilot? Well, it, it is fairly rigorous, actually. Um, I mean, you start your officer training with all the other branches from all the different roles, from caterers to doctors, you know, everybody all undertakes six months. It was for myself. It's now nine months of officer training. And the officer training is incredibly thorough, actually. That really starts by taking you back right back to your roots and actually looking at the person and you get to know yourself and your own strengths and weaknesses. And it spends a lot of time doing that. And it then builds up the whole team ethos and then it starts to introduce leadership training. And you spend a long time in this leadership training because for many of the different branches, they'll be actually heading out to a theatre of conflict almost immediately following on from training. And they can be making decisions and be held accountable for those decisions from a very, very early age in their careers. However, you'll be pleased to hear for a fast jet pilot, that's not quite the case. We don't finish officer training and get put onto a £50 million aircraft. You know, it's a real building block approach. Um, you go through, uh, I started to fly, a, a, well, it, for myself, it was called a Firefly. It goes at 120 miles an hour. You then sort of double your speed on something called the Tucano at 240 miles an hour, each stage doubling the speed. Um, and then you end up on the Hawk, which is the same aircraft that the Red Arrows fly. Mm-hmm. And um, that's about a year-long training course at RAF Valley in Anglesey. It's where Prince William was based when he was serving uh, in the Air Force. And um, at the end of that, you then get streamed onto whether what sort of type of aircraft you're going to fly. And that's from there I got streamed onto the Tornado. And for myself, that process took about four years. So it's not a quick process at all. Yes, but I imagine that you've got to learn. You've got to learn a lot in you know, in four years to be able to fly something like that yeah you do I mean they're not just teaching you the raw flying skills um they are teaching you a much bigger picture as well we we get taught something or we really have to focus on something called situational awareness which is really being able to take in the bigger picture of what is happening immediately around you and the consequences of, of what that will be in the immediate future so it could be something as simple as in the example of driving a car hearing on the radio that there's a crash, now looking ahead, seeing brake lights, and actually knowing that you know what to expect. And that's really one of the skills that they very much look at in the in the Air Force in that training program is about picking up those first cues when something is starting to change because it's such a fast-changing environment that you are be able to re- react very quickly and that you are trained with your roles, with the drills that you do by following certain procedures um, that you can respond in the right format very, very quickly. Mm. I mean, and, and during that process, I mean, are you? Uh, is, is it in your makeup to to be very confident, or at times are, are you feeling fear as uh, you know, as, as a plane rolls and moves around? And um, it's interesting, actually. I mean, I think the only time I would never say fear. I think uncertainty would be certainly a, a, a word that would describe it a little bit better because. I mean, generally, you are in your office. Now, that office happens to be going at 500 miles an hour quite often, but you are still in your office. And you have trained in that office day in, day out. And you will often, you know, have accrued thousands of hours in that office. And that's a very different situation to perhaps the army on the ground who are going into very different areas all the time. You're still in that same office environment. And although... (laughs) the whole bigger picture can be changing around you. You're very confident about how you fly that aircraft, how you manoeuvre it, what it can do um, for you. And it's only when something perhaps goes wrong 
um, or the situation changes perhaps very rapidly for the worse, that you really are put to the test. And um, I think a good example of that would be for ha- perhaps having a bird strike at low level um, where suddenly your entire environment changes incredibly quickly. Is that some, <coughs> that's what uh, a bird getting into the engine or something, is it? Yeah, um, um, I mean, often that you're travelling over coastlines, we're always told taught to try and travel across the coastline at a perpendicular angle to try and minimise that time around where the birds are. And we always raise up quite high over the coast, again, to avoid all the, the seagulls that tend to gather in those areas. But um, I think once I was coasting in over Scotland and we managed to go through an entire flock of birds that lifted straight into the aircraft. Uh, we ingested a couple down the engines and uh, it took out all of our forward-looking infrared, which has a radiation hazard that is accompanied with that. Um, so some of our sensors went down and we had to do an immediate diversion into, I think it was Prestwick at the time, wow. which is on nearby airfield. Wow. Now, <clears throat> I've not had a lot of experience with, with sort of the military, but I, I was once invited on an, an executive stretch. Uh, it was a long weekend and it was intended to show the links with business. And I can remember I had, swam, I had to swim across cold rivers in my pants. I completed assault courses with people screaming at me. I slept in a ditch, a concrete floor. I trekked in full gear and packs overnight. And I realized that, in fact, it was actually designed to teach us business people that we were softies. It's <laughs> <laughs> a really good picture there, Chris. <laughs> yeah. I gave me brand new boots. And, and uh, when I f- arrived at the end, after three days, my blisters were so bad that so a number of, I just remember having my blisters tended to with a, a, a group of army personnel shouting their mates and saying, come and look at this. <laughs> And I just kind of, it kind of put me off a little bit. And I, I'd wonder, you know, what is it like achieving fitness levels? Because I know you had to in, you know, this very kind of macho environment. Yeah, it, it was quite challenging, actually. Um, I mean, when I first joined, there was not quite that level of fitness that's required these days. And in the sort of the 20 years since I first joined now, they, they have brought in things like the fitness test, which we have to now undertake every six months. And, you know, you are seeing a big change in people's fitness, which is obviously for the be- for the better. Um, but when I first went through training, we really had to step up our um, fitness campaign, could we say, because, you know, you would be carrying the same amount of weight in your backpacks as, as your, uh, your male counterparts. And I'm very lucky, actually. I'm, I'm not of a slight frame. Um, I think I've been described as Amazonian. Um, I am six foot tall and um, I have quite broad shoulders so I could certainly match the pace of many of the um, gentlemen that I was working with so fortunately for me that was that did hold me in quite good stead and it didn't mean that I could match them but it was challenging because I think females are made up in a different different way um, and yet you are trying to prove yourself as an equal and that was I'll be brutally honest that was tough at times. Uh, we've got just a couple of minutes before commercial break, but I, I want to just ask you: There's not many people get to experience in a in a, a plane like that flying at the speeds that you've flown at with the kind of G that you've experienced in a, a multi-million pound plane. I mean, how would you explain it? What what is it like? Um, I think the best way I could possibly describe it would be flying along at low level, and you're often at 250 feet, and in certain areas of the world we're allowed to go down to 100 feet. We, we go on training camps in Canada, and it's incredible. You're flying along by, we agreed to sort of, not quite the seat of your pants, but it does sometimes feel like that, and you're up at about 500 miles an hour, and as you come around a corner, you often see somebody walking on a hill in front of you, 
off on an expedition of some sort and you think, you know, you can't hear or see me yet, but you can't help yourself and your hands just go to the throttles. You just click them into full reheat and as you go past, you turn the aircraft on its side and you wave casually as you go and and you can see their faces as this aircraft goes, you know, whipping over the top of them, you know, with these flames coming out the back and you are literally thrust back in your seat and you give them a little jaunty wave as you go or you waggle your wings and, you know, the thrill as you do something like that is absolutely fabulous. And that was always my favourite part of flying would be the low-level flying and manoeuvring, um, probably around Wales or up in Scotland as well, or Canada. Some absolutely fantastic scenery that we would uh, fly around. I mean, what a privilege to be able to operate in these areas. It'd be amazing. Well, after the break, we're going to get, really get into you know, some of the learnings that you had from a that are relevant to people in, in business, whether you're leading a company or you're uh, running your own business. So we'll be back with you in just about a couple of minutes and uh, then we shall, we shall continue the conversation with Mandy. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential? Chris Cooper supports business leaders and high-potential individuals to achieve greater success in their businesses and careers. Support includes the opportunity to join a high-return group mentoring and mastermind program called the Achiever Program, one-to-one mentoring and coaching, facilitated leader development workshops and speeches. Email info at bemoreachievemore.com to arrange a free, no-obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to Be More, Achieve More with host Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to info at bemoreachievemore.com. That's info at bemoreachievemore.com. Now, back to Chris Cooper. Hi, this is Chris Cooper. I'm with Mandy Hickson, and we're talking about business lessons from fast jet flying. So, Mandy, perhaps you could explain to us about, you know, about how you know, planning is approached in the military and what you think we can learn from uh, from your experiences? No, absolutely, Chris. Um, planning is something that we spend an awful, awful lot of time doing. Um, I mean, not just on the strategic level, but more on the day-to-day sort of mission side of things. So if we're given a task, we look at what are the objectives, what are we trying to achieve from that task, and then we will spend, you know, up to, say, four hours, which, considering it's going to be, like, perhaps an hour-long mission, you're spending... F- four times that amount in that planning stage. And you look at, uh, we call it the six Ps, basically. We say prior preparation prevents 
perfectly poor performance. They can obviously use the perfectly could be swapped for something slightly ruder. Um, but basically, by spending that time in the preparation stage, you look at all of the different options and you look at all the different things that could go wrong, different avenues, all the what-ifs. And by doing that and then thoroughly briefing that trip, it means that when things do go wrong, you have already taken that into account. So we have the loser plan, we have the bad weather options, we have what if uh, the radios go down, what's our backup? So there's backups of backups. And I think it's just a really good um, lesson for the business world whereby we so often you know, look at the good things, but actually we don't spend time perhaps looking at all the what ifs and the threats that are out there. And I'm not just talking the sort of threats as in the enemy threats, but you know, things on a day-to-day business, you know, what are the biggest threats to your company, to your business environment? And by looking at those threats and perhaps the most common mistakes and errors that are made, then actually you can start to plan for them. But if you don't even look at them, you don't know they're there. And that's very, very dangerous. Do you think we should therefore maybe at times, you know, adopt not quite such a a positive attitude sometimes towards things like risk? Because I see a lot of situations that I've been in where you know there, there are risks but um, you know somebody there is kind of smoothing them over very positively yeah uh, do you think we sometimes do that and maybe should have spend a bit more time looking at the negatives I do I, I really do actually um, and it's something I've been starting to do with a lot of different uh, corporations and businesses and I sort of call it the threat and error management it's something that the aviation industry spends an awful lot of time in planning Um, If you go to the likes of any of the big corporations, they will have planning rooms set up for the worst case scenario. You will have all the numbers on the walls. You will have all the telephone lines all in place for the the worst case what if, if, to be honest, if there's an aircraft crash. Um, And that's the worst case scenario. But actually, there's so many other smaller things that can happen. And by spending the time by looking at those risks and the threats then you can start to to actually put strategies in place. And we do something called avoid trapping and mitigating. And and the avoiding aspect of these threats is that we, you do whatever you can to actually plan against that. And and in most cases, if you can identify what the threat is, well, then you can normally try and avoid it. Often, if it gets through that first layer and you haven't managed to avoid it by training and use of standard operating procedures and all those sorts of things, then we use the next stage, which is the trapping it. So the mistake has happened or the threat has occurred, and then we stop it there and then. Um, we catch ourselves from that mistake becoming an actual, having a consequence from it. But the, the very tip of the iceberg is when those aspects get through that next level, and then we have to mitigate what are the consequences of that. And actually, that's often where we look at things like our experience levels, our training, again, to say how do we actually... The worst case has happened, now we need to actually put a different um, aspect of our training into place. And that can be also a very, very good uh, lesson for businesses to take away from as well. Yeah. With, with something that's so life and death, it, it makes so much sense. You, you've got to you know, plan for the nth degree, really. Um, as, yeah. And I think my, my wife's a, a GP and there's obviously the medical profession you know, probably are doing uh, some similar things. Um, but I had to come across a situation where I used some um, very profiling tools with companies and you know, there was a, this particular large organization, the real dawning that they had through the profiling was that they realized that they'd been taking all of the, the people out of their teams who 
who were seen as being negative because they saw the problems. Okay. What happened was the you know the great ideas and innovations or innovations were going through often unchallenged. Right. Uh, so, that, so what they then did uh, following the process is started putting them all back in again. <laughs> okay. I mean, that's actually very similar. I think it's Richard Branson, actually. He has, because he is a yes man, and he wants to say yes to everybody yes. because he's such an innovator. He's surrounding himself by no men. <laughs> yes. So basically, it has to go through the no committee to actually get past. So, you know, when someone says, could we, oh, I know, take commercial aircraft or run commercial enterprises into space, he says, Yes. And all the rest of the, his team look at him and go, well, we'll have to look at that in a bit more detail because they're the ones that are slightly more risk-averse who are perhaps going to look at the more practical aspects of it. So, yeah, it's, it's good to have people around you, you know, on both sides of that of that coin, really. Absolutely. Now, now I mentioned, you know, during our, I know during our preparations, you were, we, we talked about the challenge of complacency. And, and I wonder what... You know, are the consequences, do you think, uh, of complacency uh, and how do we avoid it? Well, uh, I was just talking about the, the threats that are out there and, and I would actually have often complacency as one of the highest threats because sometimes we actually need to recognise that it's there as a threat. I mean, when people have been in jobs for certain amounts of time, we all become complacent. We can't help it. Um, even if we've been driving for a long time, sometimes we need something to raise our awareness again as to the dangers that are out there. And, um, you know, we, are, we often say in, in the military or in the aviation world as a whole, we are only as good as your last trip. And that's absolutely true because on the next trip, something could happen and then actually you're right back to square one. So we are all vulnerable and we are very much all open to making mistakes. You know, we are human and to err is human and I think when you actually look at any one sorting there's been a lot of work that's been done in America on this uh, it started off with continental airlines and um, they were looking at on average 2.6 errors are made on every single flight now if we were complacent we wouldn't catch those mistakes now obviously in the majority of cases those those mistakes go no further they are then trapped because people are not being complacent but actually, complacency is one of the biggest killers um, out there. And the moment we relax and we take our foot off the pedal, that is when we are very open and susceptible to, to these errors as well. Mm. It seems to be, I know you do some skiing, and I have in the past, and it, with skiing, it, the sort of highest period of time when people you know, risk getting injured is that, that last ski down to the, oh, yeah. to the bottom, isn't it? You go probably going through the slush as well at the end of the day, and you're kind of complacent and thinking about your your drink. And I guess the same, you know, on a long, long car journey in an aircraft, you know, you, know, you must be when when you start getting fatigued as well. Yeah, you must have a risk of getting more complacent. You, without a doubt, actually, and 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 this will sound crazy to a lot of people, but even when you're on combat missions, for example, as I was over Iraq. Once you've been on a tour of duty for two, three months and you've been doing similar routes and you have been seeing similar threats coming up at certain times, you actually do become quite complacent. And, and when you get highlighted, you start to think, oh, we've seen that before. Oh, they don't often do anything with this. But actually, <laughs> these are the times that you need to really raise your awareness levels. And as you say, long journeys are classics for that, where you suddenly get to someone, you think, how did I get here? I don't actually recall making the decisions from that final part of the journey. And, oh, it's so dangerous. It's, you know, the, this attitude that often a lot of people have when they think it'll never happen to me. 
And that is the most dangerous attitude that we can have in business or within the world of aviation, it's regardless. And you raise a really important point, I think, about complacency in that I think one of the key roles of a leader has to be making sure that other people aren't being too complacent. Yeah. You know, I see sometimes you know, leaders, you know, almost uh, suddenly focusing on an area and throwing off a little bomb or something like that just to get people running around uh, and to stop them being complacent. Yeah. And I've seen this in, you know, areas like insurance, for example, you know, companies, I do a lot of work with insurance companies and, you know, sometimes you get them who they start to become a bit complacent and write too much risk uh, to, to bring more business in and then suddenly the whole company's at risk if, uh, if, if, if there are a series of, of bad incidents and they have to pay out. Yeah, absolutely. And it's those sorts of things that um, can be a problem. Um, yeah. so, so moving on to decisions now, you know, you have to make some pretty tough decisions in the military. And I wonder, you know, what sort of process do you go through that might be helpful to people in business? Well, one of the, uh, the tools, actually, that we're taught, and, it, and it, it sounds perhaps sort of quite elementary, I'm sure, but uh, we're taught something called the Dodar Loop, um, and it's, it's a decision-making cycle that you can go through. And Dodar, um, obviously, is an acronym, the first D being for diagnosing what the problem is. And um, basically, you, you often put a time on this at the start of it. So, for example, a lot of the commercial aviation world use this as well. And they'll actually say, OK, we have got 20 minutes for this problem. Uh, what is the issue? We've lost an engine. And then you basically run through that diagnosis of what it is. You then say, right, what are my options at the O stage? And when you're looking at the options, you are opening up that communication with your team, with any of the resources that you can possibly use to look for input. And once you have done that, I mean, there are a couple of key factors that are, have an influence on that, and time is one of them, and risk is the other. So if you're very time-limited, lim- time or it's a high-risk environment, often we'll make quite an intuitive, quick decision, um, often that gut reaction you could describe it as. Um, if we have a little bit more time, we then t- tend to go around a cycle. Um, and actually, once we've got a little more time, we will then tend to go into... Um, a rule-based analogy and actually have we got any rules within our sort of vocabulary that we can fit into this one if time is even more um, ample for us and the risk becomes less you know acute then we can start looking at a more analytical nature and then the final stage will be that creative thinking the blue sky thinking and that's only when you have a lot of time but when you look at all those options people are putting an input and then you as the leader or the, of that team, you will make a decision. And once you've made that decision, you then go across and you assign all the tasks, that's the A, uh, you communicate that out to the team, and then the final part, and the most important part for any decision-making loop, is the review stage, so those are the R at the end. And then you go back and you say, what was the problem? Right, has anything changed? No, it hasn't. Decision still stands, or this is what we need to do to change it. And actually... By following that process, it forces the people that tend to make very quick, rapid decisions. It forces them to slow down and actually use all their resources to make that decision. For those that tend to be a little bit more, let's say, tend to procrastinate a little with decision-making, again, it forces them into a cycle. And actually, by doing so, people are aware at what stage of that decision-making process you're at. So you will literally say, I'm at the option stage. And you know, and people know that you're looking for input. When you then say, I'm at the decision, 
they know not to keep on putting in different options. And it, it's a very helpful tool, actually. And I've seen it now with businesses um, who have started to introduce that, that it can just aid that decision-making process somewhat. It's a really, it's a really helpful process, that, because I think what it also does... Looking at it, it actually plays well to different people styles, doesn't it? Yeah, it definitely does. You know, so the analytical, to get the uh, options and blue sky thinkers are, are two quite different profiles of people usually, aren't they? Yeah. And so it's drawing on the strengths of the team. It is absolutely, and and you can also be very aware of your what your own style is in decision making. Now, I've always been someone that's tended to make decisions really quickly, but this by following the process has forced me almost sometimes to slow down and say, actually, what, what is the best possible way? What are the different options? And actually, you know, just and I, and I use it in my day-to-day life as well, just when we're thinking about doing things, um, even if it's planning a holiday. <laughs> I go through this, the Dodar loop. Excellent. Well, I, shall, I shall give that a go on my, my latest holiday venture, which I'm working That's on it. at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Run through with it. Sounds very, very useful. That I've made a note of that for my own reference as well. Excellent. <laughs> so... You've been, we've got just a couple of minutes now before break, but you've been on one of your exercises and you've, you've, you've come back and you're now into you know, kind of a debriefing uh, sort of process. How does that work? Because I know you said to me as much focus goes on the debrief as the planning. It, it certainly does, actually, Chris. Um, we, we really put a lot of weight on the debrief because if you think about it, that is actually where all the lessons can be learned. And we have a... We have, really worked hard in the world of aviation to create this something that we call a just culture and the just culture is not a a blame-free culture by any stretch there is certainly a line but people are very very aware of where the line is and by having this just culture we know that when mistakes are made be it in the air or on the ground people are now starting to hold up their hands to those mistakes and by by taking these into the debriefing room we take all the rank off our shoulders, well, not quite literally, but we take the rank away. And by doing that, actually, it means that people feel empowered to be able to speak. And if you can go in knowing the lessons or being able to share the lessons of mistakes or errors that have been made and everybody can learn from them, then your team performance can increase so rapidly. If you want to go in and you feel, oh, I don't want to say that because I might look foolish, well, then nobody can learn from your mistakes. And um, it's just the most powerful tool, um, without a doubt. So it's certainly something I would recommend is the debriefing technique. Excellent. I love that concept of taking the rank away. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really – it empowers all all within the team. It's brilliant. Well, after after the break, we're going to start moving into understanding teamwork and and also things like empowering your team and how that's done in the – RAF and what we can learn from it. So we'll be back with you again in just a couple of minutes. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential? Chris Cooper supports business leaders and high-potential individuals to achieve greater success in their businesses and careers. Support includes the opportunity to join a high-return group mentoring and mastermind program called the Achiever Program. One-to-one mentoring and coaching, 
facilitated leader development workshops and speeches. Email info at bemoreachievemore.com to arrange a free, no-obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to Be More, Achieve More with host Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to info at bemoreachievemore.com. That's info at bemoreachievemore.com. Now, back to Chris Cooper. Hi, this is Chris Cooper. I'm with Mandy Hickson, and we're talking about business lessons from fast jet flying. So before the break, we looked at uh, things like planning and also complacency. We looked at decision-making, debriefing. And now, Mandy, what I would really like to get into is what you've learned about teamwork and also in individuals uh, from your experiences. Um, to me, Chris, actually, I think teamwork is the absolute core of what we are all about. And we spend a lot of time getting to know the people that we work with on a day-to-day basis and knowing what their strengths and their weaknesses are. And, and also really understanding that it takes different personalities to make up a team, that we can't all be sort of the classic alpha males. And you might make assumptions, and a lot of people tend to. And I have this all the time when people sort of say, oh, you're a fast jet pilot, were you? Oh, and they'll make a judgment as to what sort of person you are simply because of the role that you did. And I I bet you know you've probably seen that many times as well, that people make assumptions when people say to you, oh, you're on the radio, oh, you must be this sort of person. And... For me, actually, it's about really understanding, getting really down to, to, to what can people offer to that team. And um, one of the really important lessons for myself actually came through fast jet training. And I'd been in the system for quite some time by that point because there was quite a, a backlog in the training world. And I actually was really keen to move out from the officer's mess. And I, I was desperate to move into the local into a local village and just sort of get a little bit of uh, separation from perhaps the Air Force, you know, in the evenings. And I wrote a very compelling argument, I felt, to the station commander, and he flatly refused me. And he said, no, you're on a flash ship training course. Um, it's essential that you stay with the rest of your course. And I felt quite put out at the time. And then I started to struggle a little bit at the, on the course. And it was only for the fact that I had stayed in the officer's mess that I was working you know, uh, living with the guys on my course, that that we all pulled together. And when anybody was struggling, we went the extra mile for them. And actually, when I look back, if I had actually moved out of the mess, the officer's mess, and into my own apartment or flat, I wouldn't have had that same camaraderie and that same sense of team that was absolutely essential to be operating. And when you think you are going to war with uh, the people that you're working with, you have got to know those people inside out and you've got to trust them and you've got to you're often putting your life in their hands and so that sense of teamwork and trust that goes with it couldn't be any more 
um, important in that environment. So I've got, got to ask you the question: you, you are going to war, and you know how how do you feel about you know maybe some of the consequences of what you you have to do as part of your job? I, I think that is something that you have got to come to terms with before you find yourself in that theatre of war. So when you are joining the military you know, you, you are aware of what you will be asked to do. Um, and especially, I think, nowadays, I think when I joined, we were perhaps in a much quieter spell. When you look at some of the recent conflicts we've had in Libya, we were in Afghanistan, we've had the Gulf. These are these have been a lot, a lot of media coverage of them. People are much more aware of what they're going into. And for myself, I, I was very aware that I am very patriotic and I do have a huge belief in, in the system and in our country as well. And I, I was always aware that, that the RAF and the military is incredibly strict on things like rules of engagement and um, when we look at collateral damage and the like. And, you know, for myself, we would never, ever carry out an attack on an environment that there was any risk of there being any civilian collateral damage. And, we, and that, was, that was very, very strict. Um, and actually, therefore, it sat a lot better with myself that you know you were often targeting purely military targets. Mm. One of the sort of buzzwords I often hear in business is empowerment, and I just interested to know you know how leaders empowered others in the RAF. Yeah, it's it's a really good question actually because I think empowerment is one of these words that people throw around now all the time. And um, empowerment is, is, is a really personal thing. You, you can't tell somebody they're empowered. I think that's the whole crux of it. Um, and often, you know, we see leaders and they want to empower those people around them. But actually, you ask the, ask the people under them, uh, their team, and, and they don't feel empowered. Because all as a leader you can do is you can provide the tools, the knowledge and the skills to help empower those people. But the empowerment has got to come from within. And that's the really important thing. Now, when you look at the military, you a lot of people often would assume it's very, very pyramidal in its structure. And although we do have that in a rank structure, the really interesting thing for us is that from a very, very early age or early stage of your career, you will be ending up leading missions um, in war zones. And for myself, that happened really just at the end of my you know, first four months of being on the frontline squadron. And you would be leading missions and a four ship of aircraft that were going uh, over the border. And you're going to be making really big decisions. And within that formation, interestingly, even though you're the youngest or the least experienced, you will often have your boss as number two in your formation. You can have your senior executive team. Everybody in that formation will be much, much more experienced and higher ranking than yourself. But you're the junior member. And they let you make the decisions and they let you lead that mission. And it's, it's an incredibly empowering position to be in because you know that the support network is there and you know that you can ask for the questions and help if you want it, but they let you get on with it. And I think that's a really important lesson for business because so often we give in business a job to somebody else and then we as the leader watch that person not doing that job exactly as we would have done it. And it's so easy to get that sort of long old screwdriver in and start tweaking it from a distance. But if you do that, you are completely taking that empowerment away. Ultimately, if they're doing the job and 
They are doing it to the best of their abilities and it might not be exactly as you want it done, but they're still creating the right end product. Well, then you've got to let them grow. You can offer help and guidance, but please don't constantly go in and correct what they're doing because otherwise, how will you ever grow the leaders of the future? And that's a really important point. And that must be quite a hard discipline for some of those more experienced people, particularly if they think that the decisions being made by the the junior person in in command uh, aren't the ones they would make. Yeah, it is. And and I think that's a skill in itself. Um, I think there's a very, very fine line between pushing that too far, though, and actually allowing decisions to go ahead that would be dangerous, and they would never do that. And that's the line I'm talking about whereby it might be a slightly different leadership style, but it's not dangerous. You're still going to get to the end product. And I think that's the important thing. Mm. So um, I'm wondering, how, how did you manage to create a life balance you know, with serving? And you were you know, away from the UK, I believe. Were, were you ever away when you had young children back at home? Um, I wasn't actually, no. I was, I was really, I, I say I'm lucky, Chris, but and I know we often talk about the life balance. Um, but so often we don't ask the question. So for myself, um, I did a lot of research to try and find a career within the Air Force that I could then pursue, which would still be in direct support of frontline operations, and yet I could actually perhaps be a little bit more home-based while my children were very young. And I managed to find an, an ideal job for, my, for, for myself to do. But if I hadn't asked the question, I probably wouldn't have been put into that position. And I think so often you know, especially as women, we don't perhaps want to ask the question because we're worried about what people will think of us, will they see us as being weak in some way. But actually, it's about being true to yourself as well. And if if we don't ask the question, then we will certainly not get the answer. But if, you know, if you don't ask, you don't know what you can get. And so I did ask, ask the Air Force if I could take that role on. They were very happy for me to do it. As it happened, it wasn't hugely appealing to a lot of other people because it might have been classed as, as perhaps a, a slightly less sort of thrill or um, challenging job. Um, but it had to be done by a pilot. And that was the really interesting thing. And actually, it worked really well for myself, actually, when my children were little. Great. And what were you doing? I was um, basically uh, designing and writing all the flight reference cards and the aircrew manuals that the pilots have to have to go flying with on a daily basis. Excellent. And for many people, you know, leaving the military and finding work outside seems to be, you know, really quite challenging. Some of the people that I met, met. I mean, what's your what's your experience of that? And you know, what are your recommendations? Um, well, for myself, it's about trying to be organised as well. If you do know that you're coming up to a stage where you're you've got a change or you're leaving a, a role, it doesn't have to just be leaving the military. But it's actually about doing the research. So about three years before I, I thought I was going to be leaving, I spent a lot of time and money converting my military license into a commercial license. Um, it's literally tens of thousands of pounds, a lot of it, exams, 14 ground school exams. And at the end of it, I held my license. And I did so with really good time. So it wasn't all rushed in the last year or last six months. I then held that in my hand. And it was only after doing all of that, though, that I sort of started to think, do I really want to follow a career in the commercial sector? My husband does it, and the two of us doing it would have been really, really challenging, especially with young children. And so I then spent a lot of time thinking, well, what else do I want to do? And you can, there's a lot of different workshops that you can go on, but 
for me, it's about really looking at your skills. What are your skills? What are your passions? What do you love doing? And if you could take the time to actually think, I love doing this, how can I create a career that would work around that passion? And that is something that perhaps people don't do often enough. We get sucked into certain careers. We take jobs that we perhaps don't want to, to to fulfill. And actually by stepping back and thinking, right, this is where my skill set is. This is what I want to do. And I'm going to see if I can ask the questions and find that career that will work for me. And it, and it, and it doesn't come often very quickly. You have to work hard at it. Yeah, and, and you sometimes have to, sometimes, yeah, as you're right, sometimes it takes quite a bit longer than you expect, doesn't it? It does. And again, it goes back to that planning, doesn't it? You know, treat it as a mission, if you like. <laughs> yeah. Spend the time in the planning phase. Yes, where you and be prepared that it's going to take a bit of planning. Yeah, uh, I remember somebody once saying to me when they'd sort of first kind of changed a career and uh, gone into they got gone into training and development uh, that you know, they had so much they felt they had to give, but not enough people to give it to. Yes, <laughs> and that can be quite a. A challenge, can't it? Oh, it certainly can. No, it really can, actually. And how would um, you know? How will you feel when your young children have grown up and they say, "Mummy, I want to become a fighter pilot." I'll say, I can't imagine a better career to go into. I mean, I, I, I seriously say this from the bottom of my heart. I, I achieved um, my absolute goal and my dream, and I did so at a quite a young age, really. Um, and a life in the military. Is, I still believe an absolutely fantastic life. You, you learn some core principles which will hold you in good stead for whatever career you then perhaps choose to go into afterwards. Um, and I don't think it matters what walk of life you go into. A life in the military, for me, is, is, has been the best thing I ever did. And I think my husband would probably agree that joining the Navy for him was the best thing that he ever did. So, um, yes, we have an interesting debate going on in our house, if, uh, which would be the best of the forces to join. So my children will probably both go into the army just to, uh, to, to, to not take sides. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wonderful. You, you certainly made me feel a little bit better if my mind say that when they're a little bit older. Yes, um, definitely. So, when, do, do you know, out of all of your you know, experiences in, in the military and, and since, I mean, what, what messages would you like to leavers with well for myself um since i've started becoming a, a speaker as well and, and and going in i go to a lot of schools and uh, businesses and for me it's really about trying to inspire people to sort of think outside the box um in the decisions they're taking within the workplace but also the the one buzzword and it's, a, it's basically a, almost like a motto that i've had in my life and it's this it's it's dream it believe it but please put it into action and do it. Yes, yes, I, I really like that. You, you've seen me speak before, haven't you? So you, yes. So you'll know that that's a kind of motto that I believe in as well. That you've got to get into action and get things done. You do. Procrastination is one of the killers, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Yeah, it, it's a killer. And I think also you're taking the time to decide what it is that you want and then absolutely going for it. Yeah wholeheartedly and putting 100% behind it at that point. Yeah, being prepared to uh, sort of cut your, cut your bridges if you have to. Yeah, and, and also overcoming this innate fear of failure that we have because until we do things, we don't know what we can be really successful at. And so it's essential that we try lots of different things. So, no, I think that's the important aspect, that you don't just take up one role and then stick with it. Try different things, you know. You don't know where your skills will be until you've tried it and there's a whole world out there. Absolutely. So, uh, that's definitely. 
That is where it's been brilliant talking to you. I've really enjoyed it. I think there's some, and I was saying this to you in the break, I think there's some really you know, thought-provoking challenges that you, you put to the business world, really, about you know, thinking about how you plan and thinking carefully in terms of things like complacency and making sure your staff aren't, aren't being complacent, making sure you're rigorously making decisions, um, that, that thoroughness of debriefing as well. And, and I, you know, the way that you also talked about empowerment, for me, actually letting people make mistakes if they need to, being there to support them, but they've got a role, let them do it. So I think there's some really, really great nuggets in there. So it's been an absolute pleasure to, to chat with you today. So I really enjoyed it, Chris, as well. So I mean, thank you for giving me the opportunity to join you. Very welcome. And um, in terms of uh, uh, Mandy Hickson, your website, mandyhickson.com? That's it, absolutely, yeah. www.mandyhickson.com. That's H-I-C-K-S-O-N. It is indeed, yes. So ch- check out Mandy, and uh, she's in demand as a, a speaker. You'll understand why, and uh, well, well worth having a, a look at what she has to say, because I think she's got something a little bit different uh, for us, us business people. So thank you again. And on next week's show, we've got uh, Rob Brown. Rob Brown is uh, an expert on, on things like networking, and he is going to talk with us about corporate presence. Rob's also a best-selling author, a really interesting character. And you know, if you're looking to pursue a career and move up the corporate ladder, then there are certain skills and behaviors that you know, really set apart um, people who are trying to you know, make that progress and also succeed when they get there. And so Rob's going to talk about that. Uh, I wish that I had many years ago when I was climbing the corporate ladder, I wish I'd had the opportunity to hear Rob talk about this. So do join us uh, next week. And uh, once again, a big thank you to Mandy Hickson. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for listening to Be More, Achieve More. Please join your host, Chris Cooper, again next Friday at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time, typically 4 p.m. London on the Voice America Business Channel. Enjoy your week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 